whom the king delights to honor from Esther uh, chapter 6. I want to kind of explain that I had that reading done this morning. It's almost kind of like in the middle of the book type of thing. And as uh, it was read, you should have picked up there was a king. Okay? And then there was somebody that came into the king's presence and the king asked a question. How should I honor someone? And so this person, which happened to be Haman, we'll talk about him more in a minute. He said, well, you should get this horse and you should have parade him through the streets and you should put this robe on him and put this crown on him. And, and so the king says, good, go do that. <laughs> and then if you noticed at the end of that reading, the guy that did that, he was upset. I, he did not want to do that. That's Haman. So we'll talk about him and kind of all what's going on there in that section of scripture in, in just a moment. So let me go through this. The book of Esther is about God's providential care. I'm excited to talk about this because from time to time, I'm confident you have heard me pray. You have heard others pray and say, help us to understand God and help us to understand his ways. The book of Esther is all about God's ways. And the reason why I'm excited about us studying this is because what he does here is very similar to what he does now. Great benefit in understanding how he works in this story. So the book of Esther is all about God's providential care, how God preserved his people because they were being threatened. And then his name is absent. It's one of those books where God's name is never mentioned yet he is clearly seen active within this book. So we'll talk about God's providence. We'll talk about looking for God, seeing him in this story. And then for such a time as this, and that phrase comes from the fourth chapter. We've been studying Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther on Wednesday nights. We are now into the book of Esther. And it's that time frame whenever those children of Israel had been carried away into captivity and now because of King Cyrus, King of Persia, he has allowed them to return. Ezra and Nehemiah deal primarily with the people that are back in the land, back in Judea, back at Jerusalem. But as we've talked about on Wednesday night, there was a whole lot more people that just stayed in captivity. This story takes place in the Persian Empire in the capital of Susa. So Esther is dealing with those people who, are, who chose to stay in captivity. They'd been there 70 years. Some of them had been born there. The characters we're talking about this morning had been born there. They had lives there. They had families there. They stayed there. So we're going to talk about how God is dealing with these people that chose to stay back in that land of captivity. There's five primarily. There is a king, Ahasuerus, or I'm going to call him Xerxes, because that's the Greek name, and oftentimes that's the way he's referred to. And then there's a queen, but she ends up leaving the scene real quick. Her name is Vastai. And then there is second in command, who is Haman. He comes along in this story. And then there is Mordecai. He's a Jew, a good guy. 
And then there is his cousin, Esther, which the book is named after. She's kind of the primary character. So those five. And it's this their story of what's taking place at this particular time. Once again, let me emphasize that the purpose of this book is to stress God's providential, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, providential care for his people. One of the reasons why I stress that providential care is because it's drawn in contrast to miraculous. Oftentimes, people will get into some kind of situation and they will pray, God, help me. (laughs) Right? And then they wait for a miracle as though that's the only way that God ever helps us. (laughs) Well, I want to tell you this right now. You can read the Bible from the very opening page to the very end and there's a whole lot more of God's help that is not miraculous as compared to what is miraculous, if you talk every miracle that is recorded on the pages of scriptures and then you sort of stretch that out over the period of time, you think, wow, there really weren't very many miracles at all. So how is it that God is controlling this world? He does it providentially. And that's what we're going to see this morning. God working providentially in situations with people to bring about his will. You with me? Okay. In regards to providence, I'm going to read from Esther chapter 1, first of all, and verse 1. And I want to mention this also. This morning, there's going to be very few passages that I'm actually going to have time to read (laughs) I will mention a lot, but we will read relatively few because of our time constraint. Okay. Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, same as Xerxes. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. You know, one of the things that excites me also about reading this book is this is the Persian Empire. You know when this has taken place? I'll tell you pretty closely. About 483 is when the events we're talking about this morning take place. 2,500 years ago. The reason why I get kind of excited about that is because we don't have to guess. You can go online if you want to. (laughs) And you can look up and you can see the entrance to Susha, the capital, Persian Empire. This is not that far distant as far as history is concerned. Real people, real times, real events. Look it up. It's there. And the Bible is recording for us this snapshot of what's taking place at this particular time and how God's involved with it. It's the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was enormous. It was vastly wealthy. And when we talk about King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, this is the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time, extremely wealthy. That's one of them we're talking about. So before we go any further, just let me ask you this question. 
Do you ever like to hear kind of a behind-the-scenes story? We've talked about it here before. There's a certain couple that I've used as an illustration before. There's a farm boy from up here in small northwest Missouri. <laughs> Meets this attractive girl from Southern California. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> and then they end up married. <laughs> and we think, somebody had to have a hand in this, right? <laughs> and we look back, because our vision is always much better hindsight but we recognize and we acknowledge something was at work there somebody God had a hand in this I'm sure if we took the time to go around the room my wife and I could tell you about our story (laughs) other couples could tell you about their story oh just by chance this is how we happen to meet and then We think, wow, that's amazing. That's kind of that behind-the-scenes story. And oftentimes, the story behind the story, the the behind-the-scenes, is the part that really fascinates us and we're impressed with. I'm going to tell you this also. Romans 8 chapter, which we oftentimes quote from, we're going to be studying before long, Romans 8 and verse 28. It says that God works all things for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. God works in the best interest of his people. Now I'm going to add one more to that because we need to make that application today. They came to Jesus on one occasion and they were upset that he had performed a miracle on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, in his defense, tells them, my father works until now. Therefore, I work. You know what Jesus was saying? Do you think that the world carries on? without God being involved even on the Sabbath day? My father works until now. That includes the Sabbath. And he says, I work also. God did not take the globe and the world and everything on it, put it on the end of his finger and give it a good spin and say, okay, I'm done at creation. No, he made it. And he made everything in it. But God is still directly involved to this day with what is going on in this world. And that includes your life and it includes my life. Just like it included in in their life. So let me give you the definition of providence. Comes from the Latin and it means before or to see. So you put those together and it means to see before. It's foresight. To see something beforehand. Now follow. Because God can see beforehand, that promotes activity. He sees what is going to take place. He sees what's going to happen. 
And so therefore he acts before it actually does happen to bring out his desired end. Now let me give you an illustration. A number of years ago, probably 30 years ago, when our son was probably, I don't know, three or four years old. It's a sunny afternoon in the summertime. There were other kids that lived on either side of us. They were about the same age as our son. And they had a ball, I think a soccer ball or something like that, in the front yard. These kids are four years old. If they've got the ball in the front yard, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> that ball is going to end up in the street, don't you? <laughs> so there's a couple of adults. I'm standing back up on the yard. The kid that lived next door, his dad's standing down at the end of the driveway closer. It was his son. <laughs> Kicks the ball. It heads towards the street. I looked up. He looked up. Guess what? There's a car coming. This kid starts running, not paying any attention to follow that ball. The dad looks up. He sees this. He takes off, snatches that kid up, and goes across the street. The car slows down, but then just goes right on by. You with me? He saw beforehand what's about to happen he acts in regards to that to get his desired outcome I don't want my son <laughs> to get around foresight brings about activity in relation to what is seen God sees what's going to happen so he starts taking action now before it ever happens. The book of Esther. God's behind the scenes. And in this book, he's never mentioned. But as one writer said, if you can't see that his hands are all over it, you must be blind. Because <laughs> he's there. Point two. So looking for God. There are some ladies here that have gone down to Branson and they put on the production of Esther. Right? Some have the book. I have the book. I don't know exactly how they did it there, but I can tell you this. This book of Esther divides up really nice. So if you took this and put it into a play, you could have three acts that divide real nicely. Chapters 1 through 3, Act 1, it's kind of the setting. Chapters 4 through 6, which we're going to take a look at this morning, it's like the whole plot starts to develop and suspense mounts. And then in chapter 7 through 10 is the solution, the conclusion, and you see what God has done. This morning, we're talking about chapters 4 through 6. Do you know what that means to you? There will be another lesson for chapter 7 through 10, right? Because <laughs> on Wednesday night, we talked about the introduction, and we kind of covered chapters 1 through 3. So this is 4 through 6. That's where we are. We're kind of like in the heat of the story, so to speak. But I'll say something a little bit about the first, first, first part of this. So in Esther chapter 1, about verse 4, this is speaking about 
King Xerxes and what's going on in the Persian Empire. The year is about 483 B.C. King Xerxes decides he's king. It would be a good day, a good time to throw a party. Now, if you're king, wealthiest person on the earth at that time, over the largest empire at that time, what kind of party you think you should throw? He throws one that lasts 180 days. This is a six-month party. And he invites everybody, and he invites all of his generals, and he invites all of his officials, and they celebrate for about six months. Now, a little insight into Xerxes as you go down through this story. You see that Xerxes, in some ways, is kind of likable. But you also see that in some ways, he's kind of easily influenced. Sometimes he's influenced for the good. Sometimes he's influenced for the bad. And we'll see that in just a minute. And sometimes when he ought to be asking questions, he's not asking questions. And you kind of slap your forehead and go, what's he thinking? And so the conclusion that I kind of reached, I was talking to somebody about this. You kind of get the idea that maybe he's not the sharpest pencil in the box. You know what I'm saying? But he's king. And when you're king, even though you're not the sharpest pencil in the box, you still make decisions. Does that sound familiar? So he decides to have this party. Towards the end of the party, he and the boys are all feeling pretty good. So he decides it would be a good thing if he tells the queen to come down and parade herself in front of the fellas. And what does she say? Ain't happening. I ain't coming. He's king. What do you think he's going to do about that? So he gets the advisors together and says, what are we going to do? And they say, oh, king, you cannot tolerate this. You must write a law that she is to be banished. She cannot come before your presence anymore ever again. It's overdone. She's no longer queen. He says, that's a good idea. And so they write that law. I want to ask you something. I hope you've read this book. If you haven't, I hope you will. She's queen. Vastai is queen. Now she's no longer queen. What does that mean? There's a vacancy at the top. Right? Where do you think Esther comes in? Can you see what's happening? So before you can have Esther become queen, you've got to get rid of the old queen. Do you think God knew this is what was going to happen? I think absolutely he knew what this was going to happen. And he's going to use that to work out his plan. So they get rid of her. And then the next thing that they decide is, well, we've got to search the empire for the most young, beautiful women and bring them here so the king can have a choice who he wants to be the next queen. 
Well, it just so happens that whenever we read about Esther, she is a beautiful young woman. There's sort of this giant gathering and she gets caught up in it. And so she is taken. And as we read on Wednesday night, they spend a year <laughs> pampering these women before they ever get a chance to see the court, a king. When it finally came her turn, the king is impressed and decides she's the one. That's Esther. She's going to be the next queen over Persia. Isn't that amazing? Now what little we know about this girl is she had lost her parents. So there's a man by the name of Mordecai, which happens to be her cousin that is older. He takes her in and raises her. A poor, orphaned, Jewish girl who happens to be very attractive when she grows up now becomes queen of the most huge empire on the face of the earth. Is that amazing? Do you think maybe God had anything to do with that? A Jewish girl? And now she's queen? So you keep moving along and you come to chapter 2 and about verses 19 through 23. And we're told something else. This is where another character comes into the play. This is Haman. Now Haman, we are told, is an Agite. Or should say, Agagite. Now, for most of us, we read that and we think, doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> He's an Agagite. Well, it just so happens that Haman is from the same place in the world that Mordecai is from. That's way back by Judah, by Jerusalem. Now let me give you a little refresher so that we come to understand who this man is. We studied a long time ago from 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter. There was a group of people that were known as the Amalekites. Remember that? And the very first king over Israel was a man by the name of Saul. King Saul. 1 Samuel, 15th chapter. God had decided these people, the Amalekites, were totally wicked, evil, needed to get rid of them. So he sends Saul down there and says, go wipe out the Amalekites totally. Men, women, children, cattle, sheep, wipe them out. So Saul takes off. But after a period of time, here he comes. And he's got some of the best cattle. He's got some of the best sheep and all these kind of things in tow. And not only does he have that, he's got somebody with him. Guess who that is? That's King Agag. So when it says that Haman is an Agagite, 
it means that he is a descendant of these people. These people, the Amalekites, have been arch enemies of God's people, the Israelites, since the days they came out of Egypt. You know what that means? God told them a long time ago. That's your enemy. You need to get rid of your enemy. But they didn't. They got rid of some of them. But they didn't get rid of them totally. So they're still there. You know what that means? It means if you don't get rid of your enemy, that enemy will come back to bite you. It'll come back to haunt you. So you need to deal with it. See, actually, when God tells us about our enemies, that's really just a type of what our real enemy is. You know what our real enemy is? Our real enemy is sin. And so what God is trying to tell us is, when you're confronted with it, you got to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, it'll come back to bite you. I want to read to you from Genesis, the fourth chapter. You might remember Cain and Abel. You remember after they were, Adam and Eve were out of the garden, and they were told to offer sacrifice. And Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices. And Abel brought an animal to sacrifice. But that's not what, he brought that because that's what God had asked for. Cain brought grain God had not asked for. So God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but he was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. So it says that Cain's countenance fell, and then God comes to speak to Cain and says, why is your countenance fallen? And in the meantime, you know what Cain had done? He had killed his brother. Abel's following after God. Cain is not following after God. There's this animosity between those who follow God and those who don't. And so this one who don't ends up killing this one. Let me see that. So in Genesis 4 and verse 7, God is speaking to Cain and this is what he says. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Some translations use the word crouch. And I like that better to help us to understand exactly what's going on. If you do not do well, sin crouches at the door and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Four words there. There's crouch. And there's door, and there's desire, and there's rule. You know what God is telling Cain? He said, sin is crouching. I like that because it's like 
an animal. You ever see an animal that is after their prey and it crouches? And then he says, it's at the door. You know what a door is? Have you ever heard of the door of opportunity? You ever heard that? So he said, sin's waiting. It's crouching. It's just looking for the opportunity. And its desire is for you. But what he says is, you should rule over it. God provides us with the ways to rule over, to win a victory over sin. That's what he said. So, we still have an Agagite. <laughs> we have Haman. And he is an enemy of the Jews. And now you have Mordecai. And now you have Esther. Both who are Jews. And Mordecai, we'll see in a minute, is the gatekeeper. And Esther has been elevated to queen. Now Haman has been elevated to second in command. He doesn't like the Jews. And so what he does is he goes to the king and this is what he tells him. O king, there are certain people within your empire and they don't follow after your laws. It's a lie. <laughs> the only law that they're not following after is that Mordecai won't bow down to Haman and Haman is upset about that because he wants everybody to bow down to him when he walks by and Mordecai says, ain't doing it. And this just eats at Haman. And so he goes to the king and he says, you got these certain people that they just don't, and throughout the empire. So now it's gone beyond just Mordecai. It's the Jews. Throughout this empire. He doesn't say Jews. He just says people that are not following after your laws. You are not wise for tolerating this. This is where I think Xerxes is. Who are these people? But he doesn't ask that. He just listens to Haman. And Haman says, a law should be written that we can exterminate these people. And Xerxes says, that's a good idea. If there's people out there, it's going to be a problem. Let's just get rid of them. But he never bothers to tell him these are the Jews. And so immediately following this, Mordecai gets word of this. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, goes out into the streets, and he is in mourning. Esther, meanwhile, is in the palace because she is queen. She hears there's something wrong with her cousin. And through messengers, she sends clothes to him. I heard that he's in sackcloth and ashes. Send these to try to comfort him. Send him some clothes. And Mordecai said, no, I ain't taking him. So through this messenger, she comes to find out exactly what is going on. Wow. This is a big deal. Now I understand why Mordecai is so upset. They want to exterminate all the Jews. 
Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I guess I better get in Esther because Genesis 4 won't work anymore. Chapter 4, 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, that's what Haman had told the king. He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came out and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. See that? That's her cousin that raised her. She loves him. She cares about him. He's in deep distress. She now knows what's going on. She's wanting to comfort him. But the story's bigger than that. So in the next few verses, what happens is Mordecai, through this messenger, sends word back to her and says, I want you to go before the king. Esther says, hold it. Pump the brakes. You just don't waltz in to the king. You have to wait for the king to invite you to come. And there is a law among the Medes and the Persians that if you go in before the king uninvited, you die. That's the law. It's capital punishment. You came here uninvited. You will die for that. So Mordecai, in response to that, tells her, you got to do it. Verse 12 through 17. We get the right place. Okay. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews, just because you're, you're a Jew. This, this law has been written, and they will get each and every one of us. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shishan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. 
See what's going on. Mordecai says, you're not protected. You're still a Jew. And this law that has been written by Haman and his cronies, it's for everybody. And so you have got to go to the king even though your life is on the line. And so what does Esther do? Get the Jews together. Go. Get God's people. This is life and death. And you get them together and you have them fast three days. Now I mentioned earlier that you don't see God's name in this book. There's also an absence of certain kind of God-heavy words that we use that are absent also. Did you notice that she didn't say, get them together and fast and pray? I believe the reason for that is because she didn't need to. As you read back through the pages of the Old Testament, fasting and praying was always together. I believe that's what she's saying. When she says, go get them and fast, it's just automatic. And she says, we, that's what we will do. It's just automatic. That's what we'll do. That's what I want you to do. Important decision. A lot is on the line. First thing to do is get together and focus fast and pray. In verse 14, he will say, How do you know but what you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know what that is? That's kind of biblical code words. <laughs> and the way that we might translate that is like this If it's not you, then who? If it's not now, then when? Isn't that what he's saying? If it ain't you, who's it going to be? But you notice what he also said to her too. If you don't, if you choose not to, deliverance will raise or will rise. Deliverance will rise from another place. Mordecai is fully confident. God will save his people. What you have is a choice. Are you going to be involved with God's plan? Or are you going to ignore God's plan? One writer put it this way. Verse 14 of chapter 4 when he says, Know you not that you may have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? He said that's another way of God, even though you can't see him, gently placing his hand upon her shoulder and saying, this is the direction you need to go. Oftentimes we need that same thing too. It's God's hand giving us a nudge 
in the right direction. There are certain situations that we come face to face with. There are certain people we come face to face with. And it's like, are you going to say anything? Are you going to stand up? Or are you just going to let it go? And that's kind of the question. Maybe you've come to this situation or come to this place for such a time as this. You've come to the kingdom for this. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't want to get involved? <laughs> I don't want to get involved. Now, let me say this. Sometimes people don't want to volunteer. I don't get involved. Let me tell you this. The day you became a Christian, guess what? You volunteered. The only question now is, now that you've volunteered, are you going to serve? Right? That's what it is. You volunteered when you became a Christian. There are no draftees in the Lord's army. They're all volunteers. But they, you volunteer to become a Christian. You volunteer to serve in the Lord's army. You know what armies do? <laughs> they go to war. They go to war. I was talking to an elder on one occasion where there was some stuff going on. <laughs> and I said something to him about it and sharing opinions, what we thought should be done. This is an elder. And you know what he said to me? He goes, I don't like to fight. Say, well, the day you became an elder. I'm not saying fights have to be ugly. That's not what I'm saying. Religious fights can be some of the most ugly fights there ever were. I'm not saying they have to be ugly. But you have to step up. That's what Mordecai is telling Esther. You came to the kingdom. Who knows, but for such a time as this, you have the ability. You have the opportunity. Are you going to step up? Now, you know, in some situations, I would tell you this. It takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? <laughs> Sometimes like... Eee. So you got to have the courage. you got to have the courage to do that. But let me tell you this also. Courage doesn't just come from you. <laughs> Sometimes we think that. Oh, well, he's a courageous person. It's just all about him or it's all about her. They're just courageous, you know. They're just itching for a fight. Well, that's not the way it goes. <laughs> Let me tell you where courage comes from. Courage first comes by recognizing there's a responsibility. And by recognizing there's a responsibility. And by recognizing exactly what Mordecai told Esther, if you don't do it, that's not going to stop God. 
He's still going to work his plan. You just got to decide whether or not you're going to work with him. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are fellow laborers together with God. It's your choice. But God's going to work his plan. And wouldn't you much rather work with him as opposed to him? <laughs> Absolutely. Esther wasn't born into royalty. She hadn't taken any leadership classes. But she knew her cousin. She knew his convictions. She knew how he had raised her. And she knew what she was. And so she saw. This is my responsibility. And she says, I'm going to step up. But before I do, <laughs> I'd really like you all to get together and pray about this. And that's exactly the right Thing to do. Three days poured out. Poured out for God. Poured out to God. You ever read about that kind of thing happening before? Or I should say, after? You remember Jesus in the garden? It's you. It's now. And it's hard. So he prayed. And when he came out of the garden, he'd reached his decision, right? He's going to do it. So Esther says, I'll do it. I want you to get together and pray. She says, I'll go. If I die, I die. Now, Esther was a woman. She's got a plan. So you know what Esther does? We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. Esther goes and gets all dolled up. <laughs> She puts on the royal robe. She's looking good. She goes down there just where, not up to the king, but just where he can possibly see her. And he recognizes. And he says, hey, Esther. She's like, oh, I didn't see you. <laughs> That's not in the text. <laughs> she goes towards the king and he extends the golden scepter. That means... You can come talk to me. And so, so far, her plan's working out. <laughs> did God want her to go? Yeah. But did she use her thinking about maybe how I should do that? Yeah. But they prayed about it first, and then she went, and now she tells him, I'd like to have a dinner for you. For you and Haman today. So the king says, fine, we'll do it. But I want to know what you want. She goes, let's have the dinner. So they come to the dinner and then he asks her again, what do you want? Why'd you come here? And she said, I want to have a dinner for you too tomorrow. And tomorrow when we're here together, I'm going to tell you exactly what I want. And so the king's like, okay, fine. That's what we'll do. Haman, you good with it? You know Haman's good with it. I'm invited to a private lunch with the king and the queen. 
Who are you talking about? <laughs> this is Haman, right? So they all leave. Go their separate ways. They're going to wait for lunch tomorrow. King, Queen, Haman together. But see, Esther knows that guy, he's plotting to kill us all. So you know what Haman does? He leaves and goes home. He calls his wife, friends, family together, and he's telling them in so many words, you can't believe how good things are going for me. <laughs> Not only am I now second in command, not only have I orchestrated this law to get rid of all these Jews throughout the entire empire, I had lunch today with the king and queen and I'm invited back tomorrow. They must really think I'm something. That's not what he says, but he's telling them how he's been treated. In the meantime, the king that night let me back up one second. But Mordecai, or Haman says, the only thing that's not going well is that pesky Jew that won't bow before me. So you know what they tell him? You're going back tomorrow to have lunch with the king and the queen. So tonight, build the gallows. So you can hang Haman on him. And tomorrow when you go into the king, tell him you want to hang Mordecai. I said Haman did it. I want to hang Mordecai on those gallows. And they're all like, yeah. And Haman's like, yeah, that's a good idea. That's what I'll do. <laughs> so now then in between. That night... The king can't sleep. So you know what the king does? He calls for an official and he says, bring the records of the kingdom and read them to me. And I'm thinking, boy, that ought to make you fall asleep, right? <laughs> well, it just so happens that the part that he reads is about the time that Mordecai, sitting in the gate, overheard a plot between two individuals to try and kill the king. Mordecai goes and tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king investigates, finds out that's true, and he has those men put to death. And when this official reads that to him, he says, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Who was that? Well, that was Mordecai, the Jew. He goes, what did we do for him? He goes, well, we didn't ever do anything for him. He's like, what? We didn't do anything for him? Well, now it's morning. And the king says, who's that coming into the courtyard? Guess who? It's Haman. And so Haman comes waltzing in. And the king says to him, if there was a man that I chose to honor, what do you think would be a good way to honor him? That's what we read this morning. 
Haman says, you ought to take that man, put a robe on his shoulders, you ought to put a crown on his head, you ought to set him on one of your horses, and then have one of your princes lead him through the streets saying, this is the way God honors a man. And Xerxes said, that's a good idea, go do it. What? <laughs> Haman wants to kill Mordecai. And now he's got to go parade him through the streets and he's crying out, this is the man that the king wants to honor? Do you think God's hand was involved in that? There's no doubt. that God's hand was involved in that. He was living, Mordecai, under a death threat. He was just waiting for it to come. And God takes King Xerxes, which I still don't think is real sharp. He takes a young Jewish girl, puts her in the palace, he takes Mordecai, which when you look in chapter 2 and chapter 6, it talks about him sitting in the gate. Most commentators will tell you he was probably a gatekeeper. We have studied before, read about before Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king. Even though these were foreigners living in the Persian Empire, they stayed there and they were able to rise to certain places of position. Being a gatekeeper was a good job. That allowed him to overhear these things. Do we think that's all just coincidence? How'd you get that job? How'd she get in that position? And so now, God's people are in position to influence what's going to happen in the empire. Because he still doesn't realize you married a Jew. You know Mordecai is a Jew. But now have you stopped and thought about what Haman did and what's going to happen to all these people? God's hand working through these people. There is nothing miraculous going on. It's providence. That's the same way God works in my life and your life. Providence. So when you pray, don't wait for a miracle. Just know this. God sees beforehand. He knows. And He can work out those things in the best interest of His people. I leave it there. You'll have to come back for the rest of the story. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to do that even this very day. It was Jesus who said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. If you're a child of God and need to make your life right, let us know. While together we stand and while we sing.